Hello, this is Karen Strassman. Oh, hi. It's Chromie again. <laughs> it's good to see you. Welcome to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. We are the Forsaken. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cops on Radio. Today is one of these days when you think, can this get any better? I have the great honor to welcome the actress that lends her voice to my second most favorite World of Warcraft character, Chromie. Hello and welcome, Karen Strathman. Hi. <gasps> it's you! Oh, wait. This is before the... Um, never mind. <laughs> Hello. So nice to, to finally be able to sit down with you. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I have been going in my mind, going over who I wanted to interview for the show. And you were like top three. Oh. Definitely. Since this is a World of Warcraft podcast. I will definitely get to your work for Blizzard eventually. But for now, I would like to focus on you, the person, the actress, and your vast body of work. It's past time we got serious. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners so we can get a general basic idea of who Karen Strassman is? Oh. <laughs> um, I... Everyone calls me Chromie. But my real name is Cronormu. Huh? <sighs> no, it is not a male name. You clearly don't understand the intricacies of dragon culture. I'm Karen Strassman. I'm an actress and I'm passionate about storytelling and um, making people laugh and giggle and cry. And um, I love... Um, I love doing theater. I love being in movies and television and uh, doing all kinds of voiceover, cartoons, video games. And I've had the, I've been blessed to um, make my living doing what I love as an actress for about 30 years now. So I have um, hundreds of credits um, for hundreds, I've done hundreds of video games. I've done hundreds of cartoons, animation, anime. Um, I've done many, many um, television shows and series and movies. Um, and I'm also, I also coach actors. When um, I went to France, when I was a, a student, I did an apprenticeship to learn to become a dialect coach. So I, I, love doing other accents and I I coach people now when I have time I don't always have time but when I have time I coach actors and voiceover actors and I help them prepare for their auditions and I also when people come to me to learn an accent or to lose an accent or just to or just to be coached you know um for a voiceover audition or a non-camera audition you know 
whether there's an accent or not. So there you go. Right. I, I've lived in France for about um, part of 16 years of my life. And now I live in Los Angeles um, and I have a beautiful cat named Juno. Juno. Yeah. In our pre chat, I, I was so surprised because our, our Juno, she, she is the, the creator of Bob's Run Radio. And I was like, so surprised when you showed me your Juno. It was it's so cool to see these small similarities in life and coincidences. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, that, and in terms of introducing myself, I'll also say that I'm part Danish. Um, yeah, and that um, my mother was Danish. And um, as I said to you, I tell a little smaller dance. I mean, Then me more dance. My mother was Danish, and so I grew up going to Denmark a lot on my vacations. But um, I, I don't speak it as well as I'd like um, because my mother didn't think it would be. I would need to learn to speak Danish. She didn't know how beautiful um, it would be to speak Danish fluently. They say I died in the dead mines. <laughs> Fools. My elixir brought me just close enough to death to fool your weakened mind. It's all too simple to mimic the effects of death when your assailant's minds are addled with neurotoxins. Care to split a drink? It's not poisoned. Promise. Hello, everyone. Chromie has been summoned to battle within the Nexus, so I thought it'd be a good idea to sit down and talk about what this bronze dragon has done for the story. Let's begin, shall we? Chromie, the female gnome, is called Chronomu within her bronze dragon form, and she's part of the bronze dragon flights. They're charged with safeguarding the purity of time, as in the old days, it was said that there was only one true timeline which they had to protect. Without the truth of time, as is meant to unfold, more will be lost than you could possibly imagine. The fabric of reality would unravel, so it was up to the bronze dragon flights, Chromie included, to observe the timelines and make sure the time flowed away that it was supposed to. Her leader Nosdormu was given his information as the blessing of the titans was placed upon him and on top of that they also showed him his moment of demise to teach him that despite his amazing powers he still had to answer to time itself. It was a terrible burden but a wise lesson all the same and we'll come back to this later on in the video let's first talk a little bit more about Chromie. The first time that we see her show up in the game was during classic World of Warcraft in one of the more tragic storylines. It all begins with Marlene Redpath, a spirit that died during the Battle of Darrowshire. So many died that day, yet she can't find eternal peace since she was told to hide her little niece Pamela and she doesn't know what happened to her. Adventurers are asked to investigate and within Darrowshire we find out that fate wasn't kind to Pamela either. She too has become a spirit. Bad people whisper to her and she wants her daddy to make them go away. But her daddy isn't there. Sometimes when it gets dark and lonely, all she wants to do is play with her little doll which she left in town. We can't bring back her daddy right now, but the least we can do is bring back her little doll and inform her aunt of what happened to Pamela. Marlene is devastated to find out what happened to her niece. She wishes that Joseph could once again be with his daughter, but this 
isn't possible. His soul was twisted by the scourge and he had become a monster and yet perhaps there is a chance to change his fate. A strange historian, a strange gnome by the name of Chromie has taken up residence within Anderhal. We're told to collect Joseph's wedding ring from his grave and bring it to her. Perhaps with Chromie's aid we can do something to help reunite Pamela with her father. Within the Enderhall Inn, we find the bronze dragon and thankfully she is willing to help us, yet she didn't come here without a reason and she also requests our aid with a quest of her own. Someone has been tampering with the timeline, most likely the Scourge, and the bronze dragonflight, they've set up a base of operations to mend the damage. They're working from a different timeline to not overly contaminate the timeline that they're trying to heal, but to continue to do this, to continue their spell, they'll need some trinkets found within lockboxes across the ruined city. On top of that, we're also asked to aid with the healing by rooting out temporal parasites that infest the silos of Anderhal. Upon finishing the quest, Chromie rewards us and she says, I see no harm in rewarding you for your assistance, mortal. Your greatest feats are to come and the awarding of a bauble will certainly not alter your future destiny. Your continued aid, however, is something that I and the Dragonflight could use. It seems that rewarding us in that moment would not tamper with the overall timeline and with that out of the way, we focus once more on reuniting Pamela with her father. After obtaining the Annals of Darrowshire, we read about the battle at Darrowshire and what exactly happened to Joseph Redpath. The Battle of Darrowshire took place in the middle of the Second War, when Scourge forces rampaged across Lordaeron. Darrowshire was cut off from the bulk of Alliance forces, but the town was bolstered by a company of troops, a contingent of the Paladins of the Silver Hand, and a staunch group of local militia led by Captain Joseph Redpath. The Scourge's first assaults on Darrowshire were sparse. Small groups of marauding skeletons and corpses wandered the outskirts of the village and were repelled. But the Scourge were not balked by the defenders' tenacity and they responded in kind. Soon after the first wave of attacks, a second wave emerged. Champion ghouls, servants of the ghoul lord Horgus, screamed down from the hills and clashed with beleaguered Darrowshire defenders. The defenders weakened, but were relieved by paladins, disciples of the Silver Hands. Their leader, Davil Crockford, was a native of Darrowshire. He brought his followers to the village when he heard of the impending attack, and together with the defenders, they held back the servants of Horgus. When Horgus himself entered the battle, he met with Davil. For many minutes they fought, and Davil eventually prevailed. But he suffered a mortal wound and died soon after defeating the Ghoul Lords. The battle continued and Captain Redpath led his militia bravely. And it might have been one had the captain not been corrupted by the death knight Marduk the Black. In the middle of the fray, Marduk rode up to Redpath and with black magic he tore loose Redpath's spirits, twisting it into an evil shadow of the brave captain. The corrupted Captain Redpath then spread his evil taint amongst the defenders of Darrowshire, who betrayed their allies and slaughtered them. They then turned on the town of Darrowshire and killed all who hid in their homes. The remaining Scourge army, along with the corrupted spirits of Captain Redpath, then left the ravaged village of Darrowshire and tore into Lordaeron, adding to the pain and death of the Second War. That is how history is written, and Chromie uses her magic to add more pages to the annals, describing what happened after these events. For example, Joseph Redpath, he was eventually taken down by Alliance troops at Karen's Withering, while his brother, Carlin Redpath, he survived and eventually joined the Argent Dawn. 
were told to bring this book to Carlin, and after a long quest chain of obtaining relics of the past, relics that Chromie will use in her spell, we're ready to rewrite history. At Darrowshire, we take place in the battle of the past, and we're told that two things must happen. Devil must survive beyond the death of Horgus, and Joseph Redpath must survive to be corrupted and defeated. After defeating the corrupted Redpath, his spirit is saved, and we reunite little Pamela with her father, who she's been missing for years. Years. The bronze dragonfly's duty is to safeguard the purity of the timeline, but apparently this minor alteration, this was possible and it shows that Chromie, she has a much larger affinity for mortals than the rest of her kind. She went out of her way to help us and these spirits, and this was only the first time that she showed up in the story. Now with the Burning Crusade, we were allowed entrance into the caverns of time and aid the bronze dragonflight with safeguarding the timeline. At first, we aided Faral with his escape from Durnholt, we aided Medivh with the opening of the Dark Portal, and we made sure that the battle for Mount Hyjal took place just as it was supposed to happen. Now during the first two instances, we found out about a dragonflight called the Infinite Dragonflight, yet their purpose and their goals was not really explained. It seemed like they wanted to alter time, they wanted to prevent Thrall from escaping and by doing so prevent him from forming the Horde. They wanted to prevent Medivh from opening the Dark Portal and by doing so not bring the Orcs to Azeroth in the first place. Now you might say that preventing the war between the Alliance and Horde would be a great thing, but apparently things happened just the way that they were supposed to happen and we had to make sure that the timeline stayed pure. Now during Wrath of the Lich King, we also helped out with the culling of Stratholme, and this is where Chromie showed up once again. The Infinite Dragonflight wants to prevent Arthas from discovering the Plague Grain, which would then lead to his choice of purging the city, and him eventually becoming the Lich King. This is apparently another key point in time, something that has to happen, so we're sent on the task of dispelling the illusion, making Arthas discover what's going on, and eventually aid him with defeating Melganus. Again, it's the Infinite Dragonflight that wants to mess around with time, so we have to discover who they are, what they want, and most of all, who's leading them. At Wormrest Temple, Chromie acts as ambassador of the Bronze Dragonflight, and she gives us the Hourglass of Eternity to protect at the Bronze Dragon Shrine. If we protect it long enough, the leader of the Infinite Dragonflight should be revealed, but surprisingly enough, it's actually the image of Nosdormu that shows up. It doesn't make any sense to Chromie, but at least she's happy that we've seen the Lord of Time, since at that point in time nobody had any idea as to where or when their leader had gone. Later on, we're sent on the same mission, only this time we have to help out our past self with fulfilling their mission, as our future self helped us out the first time, and by doing so, we can close this time loop. Timey-wimey stuff, everybody, but this was the first clue as to figuring out who was leading the infinite dragonflight, since it was none other than Nosdormu himself. As I mentioned at the start, Nosdormu was shown his moment of demise to teach him that not even he was above death and that the timeline had to stay pure. Yet in one of the timelines, or perhaps in all of them, a future not yet shown, Nosdormu was tricked by the old gods into trying to subvert his mortality. As a result, Nosdormu shattered the timeways and created the infinite dragonflight, jeopardizing the very future of Azeroth. You crawl unwitting like a blind writhing worm towards endless madness and despair. I have witnessed the true end time. This, this is a blessing you simply cannot comprehend.
So by abusing his power, by preventing his own death, Nosdormu and his bronze dragonflight, they became corrupted and he was known as Moruzand. During the events of the Cataclysm, we teamed up with Nosdormu before he was corrupted. As we took on his corrupted form, we claimed the Dragonsoul from the past and Thrall used it to defeat Deathwing and prevent the Hour of Twilight, the moment where the old gods would free themselves out of their prisons and rule the world once more. This seems to be the goal of the infinite dragonflight, mess around with time in such a way that the old gods would be able to liberate themselves and rule the world again. If you prevent Medivh from opening up the dark portal, or if you prevent Thrall from escaping Durnholt, then you would have no Goel to assist the aspects during the Cataclysm. Prevent Arthas from becoming the Lich King, and you have no armies traveling to Northrend and figuring out that Yaxxaran was breaking out of his prison. That's just my interpretation and speculation though, when it comes to time travel, there are so many situations to consider, it becomes near impossible to predict how a future would go down. Regardless, this video is not about time travel in general, this one is about Chromie, and during the Cataclysm, she showed up at the end of the Well of Eternity dungeon, as well as during the Protectors of Hydra daily quest, where she assisted us not in her full dragon form, but in a bronze whelpling form. It's possible that this version of Chromie was much younger compared to the ones that we've seen in, for example, the Culling of Shrefholm. The Chromie that shows up at the end of the Well of Eternity also says, what can I do for you, stranger, implying that for Chromie, this is the first time that we meet her. With the defeat of Deathwing, the Aspects apparently fulfilled their destiny, and they, together with their flights, have lost a great deal of their power. Chromie stands next to a fragment of Deathwing's jaw, allowing players to see what exactly happened at the end of the Cataclysm. With the Bronze Dragonflight losing so much of their power, Nosdormu claims that the timeways are no longer their concern. They are beyond their ability to control, and from here on out, protecting history would fall upon mortal shoulders. This is described within the novel Dawn of the Aspects, but the Blue Dragon Caligos he doesn't agree with the others, and he believes that they can still have a purpose in the world. He reminds the aspects of their history together, of what they were before they were turned into the aspects. And during Mr. Pandaria, we saw the rise of a whole new faction called the Time Walkers. Mortals and bronze dragons work together to safeguard the timeways at any cost. And on the Timeless Isle, we work together with a bronze dragon called Kairos Dormu. The presence of the Timeless Isle is proof that many things are possible beyond the battle boundaries of linear thinking. You have the power to change your destiny. Return Indeed. twice as After powerful. After the Cataclysm, my flight's connection to the Timeways Do not mistake the power changed. that darkness what offers for true to shake strength. shake time as you would a ball of clay? What possibilities await? What new worlds could we create? I like the way you think. Kairos is quite frustrated with how they lost their power and how they can only see glimpses of the future now, but not all hope is lost. He has a device called Vision of Time, an hourglass, which after filling it with magic from the Timeless Isle, we can use it to see glimpses of the past, future, and even possible futures. This is not the only use though, and after Mr. Pandaria, after Garrus was defeated, imprisoned, and they placed him on trial, we found out that the Vision of Time was going to be used during the trial itself. The novel War Crimes describes how Kairos Dormu would assist Bane in defending Garrosh, while Chromie would assist Rhonda in a role's accuser, as they both used the vision of time to show moments of the past. This was to not only argue the case itself with just words, but to actually show the courtroom what had happened. Now you might wonder if a trial has any place in World of Warcraft, but in the end, 
it didn't really matter. The Black Dragon Raphion, he had made plans and schemes with Kairos to liberate Garrosh and bring him to a different reality. As the trial was coming to an end, Chromie caught Kairos in the act of tinkering with their device, and she asked him what the hell he was doing. Next thing she knew, she woke up, locked away, as Kairos tossed the device on the floor, creating a time wave for him and Garrosh to escape. A massive battle took place at the Temple of the White Tiger, with Chromie herself assisting in fighting off the enemy, and she explained to the others what Kairos had done. We once knew the timeways inside and out, she began. We could see the past and the future with perfect clarity. Our flight's charge from the moment Nosdormu became our aspect was to protect the sanctity of the timeline, and we were given vast power to do this. Now. Things aren't quite so clear. We can still travel the timeways, but we don't have that perfect knowledge anymore. That's why we enlisted mortals to help us keep the timeline safe. But there have been some mutterings. Some of us think that perhaps we should use what skills we have left to manipulate the timeways. Alter the past, change the future to something better, she smiled sadly. Of course, who's to say what is better? Especially when we don't have the perfect insight we once did. That's what's helped most of us back, but it's obvious now that Kairos was amongst those who thought that the bronze dragons could and should change things. He always did like to tinker. Her voice chilled off. This all seemed to point towards Kairos birthing the infinite dragonflight, altering time to their own desire seems to fit perfectly with affection, yet things didn't work out the way that they had planned. Garrosh and Kairos, they arrived in alternate Draenor, but Garrosh didn't feel like becoming another puppet. He wasn't about to take orders from some bronze dragon and do what Kairos and Raphion had planned, namely form the Iron Horde and have that horde help us with fighting against the Legion. Instead, Garrosh choked the life out of Kairos and moved ahead to form the Iron Horde, not to fight against the demons, but to invade our Azeroth and get him his revenge. This led into the expansion Warlords of Draenor, where the Dark Portal turned red, we took the battle to the Iron Horde on alternate Draenor, and eventually we teamed up with Ketkar and Chromie, and we discovered what happened to Kairos. Come back in one piece. The trail will not be easy to follow. Start by heading east. We'll track you from the air. trail of time anomalies like this. Here! It looks like Garrosh came down this way alone after he first arrived on Draenor. But where was Kairos? Hmm. Look at Garrosh. His hands are bound. But he's alone. When did he and Kairos part ways? Hmm. That ogre shouldn't be here. Something strange must have happened up on this ridge. in disguise! Garrosh killed him! But where is the body? We must be close. Is this him? It is. The final resting place of Kairos Dormu. Betrayed by Garrosh the moment they arrived on Draenor. Laughter turned to shrieks. The jagged glass tore through flesh easily, not breaking even as it sliced through muscle and glanced off bone. Garrosh kept a firm grip on the shard's bronze sculpture with his manacled hands. Power surged into the glass. Bronze scales appeared and disappeared on Kairos' skin. He was trying to use the shard, trying to shift back into his dragon form. It wasn't working. 
Garrosh shoved him over and followed him to the ground, dragging the sharp edge around Kairos' shoulder until it met the collarbone and had to be pulled free. The shrieks grew louder. Weak orcish hands struck out, trying to push Garrosh away. He lowered his face to mere inches from the bronze dragon's eyes and buried the shard in his throat. Shrieks turned into gurgling. Garrosh held the shard firm, ignoring the torrents of energy racing in and out of the glass, focusing instead on the total surprise in Kairos' eyes. No more. Garrosh said, no more puppeteers hiding in the shadows, no more slavers offering corrupted power, no more of the likes of you, the orcs will be free of all masters. Garrosh twisted the shard and dragged it down into Kairos's chest, stabbing again and again. Blood spilled onto the hilltop, not orcish blood, not the blood of any creature that had ever walked on this world, but the land would drink it all the same. Finally, he pulled the shard free and stood. Kairos convulsed on the ground. Garrosh watched, curious. He had never killed a bronze dragon before. The shard trembled in his grip, beating in time with the dragon's final heartbeats. Bronze mist, each moat thick as a grain of sand, moved away from Kairos. It was not dispersing like smoke, but rather pulling together into a thin, rope-like vortex, twisting away into nothing, as though being drawn away from this world. When the bronze mist was gone, the shard was quiet. Kairos' eyes were wide open and he breathed no more. Garrosh waited. He wanted to be sure. Minutes passed before he grunted and nodded. An easier end than you deserved. He left the body where it lay. Any who happened upon it would simply see an orc who had angered someone he shouldn't have. For Azeroth. Sorry for all the times you're about to get killed. If it's any consolation, you won't remember any of them. We will find a way through this. Be vigilant, friend. Very good. I will distract Kairos while you attack. If anyone gets too hurt, I'll undo your wounds. You are Warchief no longer, Hellscream. You're free because I willed it. You live because I will it. You will join your father and rally the old Orc clans because I will it. Kairos! What did you want? Why did you need an army? Not just one. An infinite number of armies. Across an infinite number of worlds. I. Would. Be. Infinite! Ah! Hellscream! Without me! Who? Victory! Champion, you did it! Good night, my time-lost prince. And that's where the story of Chromi or Chronormu ends, at least for this moment. Now some final tidbits that might be fun to mention at the end. Chronormu is actually a male name amongst the bronze dragons. Nosdormu, Chronormu, that mu at the end is to indicate a male, whereas the female names, they all end with me. You got Soridormi, Alurmi, yet nearly all of the other records, they describe Chromi as a female. I think it's left for personal interpretation as to what gender Chromi falls under. In the end, What's in a name? When used the selfie camera, while under the effects of photobomb, Chromie is one of the NPCs that has a chance to appear, and she also tossed a coin into the Dalaran Fountain, which reads, Just once, I wish someone would greet me, without making a stupid joke about gnomes or time travel. Hmm, haven't we done this before?
And that's all we have for Chromie when it comes to Warcraft. And now this bronze dragon enters the Nexus, the battle. I'll play a full cinematic at the end of the video, but during it, this happens. In the beginning. Uh, wait a minute, that's not... <sighs> Hold on. In our most desperate power. Whoops, no, 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 way too far. Chromie shows us a piece of the StarCraft universe, and we see many StarCraft references before. Is this confirmation that the WarCraft universe and the StarCraft universe are connected? Does the Bronze Dragonflight not only have the power to see alternate realities, alternate timelines, but also completely different franchises? Or is this just a fun meta joke that they decided to pull with the cinematic? I'll leave that up to you to decide. Now, if you want more information about the whole time travel thing in World of Warcraft, I'll link a video that I've done before in which I talk more about the Infinite Dragonflight and time travel in general. As always, thank you very much for watching, everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time, guys. See ya! In the beginning. Uh, wait a minute, that's not... <sighs> Hold on. In our most desperate power. Whoops! No, no, no! Way too far! The Nexus! The marvelous anomaly to which the Bronze Dragonflight has sent me as their champion! Oh, hello again! Or is this the first time we've met? You might ask why, as a dragon, would I choose to be this size? works for me. I'm here to keep the very fabric of time and space from unraveling like... Like that. Everyone knows it's not possible to be in several places at the same time. The past you, future you, and future super creepy you? That's different times at the same place, and that's when it gets fun! <laughs> Don't worry, that's gonna get nerfed. Let's review. Through all time and space, there's more power hidden in the smallest things than you will ever know. I obviously did some research on you to be prepared. Okay, I, I can't wait. <laughs> it's always fun to hear what people um, research about me. <laughs> Many things I forget about. <laughs> time is not a flat circle. That is way too simplistic. It's a little more wibbly-wobbly than that. One aspect that I couldn't find much about, other than the reference here or there, mm -hmm. are your early years of acting and the theater part of your career. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little about that? Yeah, I, um, I grew up um, doing theater um, as, soon as, as soon as there were plays that I could be in. So I did all of my the school plays that I could uh, possibly get into. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I went to a school called National Cathedral School, and they had a really wonderful uh, theater program, and um, and I just did every play that I could. Yeah, I was, I was telling someone earlier today, you know, they asked me who had inspired me to become an actress, and um, I, I, it was just one of those things. I just grew up with a yearning to tell stories and to act, and I, I don't know where that came from, because my father was an architect and an artist, and my mother was a, um, a psychologist. And so we, in Washington, D.C., you know, it's more of a political town, or I didn't know any actors. And so I, I, it wasn't a nurture thing. It was definitely a nature thing that I was just kind of popped out of the womb like that. <laughs>
Um, and yeah, it's just something I've, it was always my dream growing up as a child. It was always my dream to, to act. And um, when I was 13 or 14, I uh, got the role of Helen Keller in a beautiful, beautiful play called The Miracle Worker about um, Helen Keller when she was a very little girl before she knew, like she, when Helen Keller, people who know she is, she was both blind and deaf. And um, when she was growing up um, a century ago, or a little more, maybe more uh, to, uh, I forgot what date, but I'd have to look it up. Um, and they were going to put her in an insane asylum because she was deaf and she was blind. And on top of that, she had no way to realize that communication existed because she was, imagine if you're deaf and blind, how would you know that people are, are communicating with each other or talking? Yes. Um, how would you know that there's something to see. How would you know that there's something to hear? So she was kind of brought up like an animal in, in her household. Um, and the family had her hanging out with the dogs and, and they wanted to find somebody to train her so that um, they wouldn't have to put her in an insane asylum. And so that, you know, she, she would walk around at dinner and just put her hands in people's plates and eat from their plates like an animal. And so they looked for somebody to train her to behave so she could live at the house. And a young woman named Annie Sullivan came and um, answered the, the job call. And again, I think this is in the late 1800s, very early 1900s. Um, and uh, so Annie, instead of just training her to not be a complete wild animal, Annie um, decided that she wanted to somehow get it across to Helen. This Helen was like 10 years old, this little girl, that communication existed. And there was a world outside of her, you know, isolated, blind and deaf shell. And so the play that I was in called The Miracle Worker, and I'm a little bit moved by it right now, even as I talk about it, was about um, Helen, Annie and Helen's relationship. And Helen, Annie finally being able to by a miracle, getting it across to Helen that there's communication. And so she taught Helen words with her hand and spelled them in Helen's hand. And it turned out that Helen Keller had a very, very high IQ. And she ended up going to Harvard. And Annie Sullivan sat by her the whole time and spelled things into her hand. And, um, and she became a scholar. Helen, and you can look online and hear stories about her. And um, so it's, she's a miracle. Wow. And so when I was 13 years old, I played the role of this wild child, Helen Keller, animal. And I would go to the theater after school and I would blindfold myself and, you know, put things in my ears and walk around the stage and imagine what it was to not be able to see or hear. And, um, I fell in love with acting then, and uh, people who are at my high school um, and family, they still tell me, you know, it's no wonder you're an actress now. We saw you play Helen Keller, and you made us cry, and um, and so I just, I, I kind of fell in love with that magic of sort of, you know, dropping into somebody else's soul and experience and um, being able to transmit that somehow, you know, whether it's a cartoon character or a human, like a living human being. Although, you know, I tend to kind of treat cartoon characters as living creatures as well. 
<laughs> so there, that's kind of that's kind of my past. And then I, I um, I didn't I, I didn't think that I was pretty enough or talented enough to be an actress, um, because at the time I was growing up, there were actresses like Brooke Shields who were beautiful, who were popular, and you know I just I was a you know funny little short redheaded thing. Um, and people told me that, well, you're not really pretty enough to be like a leading lady, but you're not, you know, funny looking enough to be a character actor. So we don't know what to do with you. Um, so I studied psychology because I thought, well, you know, that's about people too. And I can learn to understand people. And, and, um, and then I took my junior year abroad in France when I was 19 years old. And that's when I got the apprenticeship to be a dialect coach. And then when I was there, I started, uh, I just started getting jobs dubbing um, French films into English. And that led to cartoon work and that led to video game work. And um, the rest is sort of history. I, I stayed in France for about 16 years of my life, um, working as an actress, doing film and television and cartoons and video games. And then um, after that, I moved to Los Angeles and started working here. And you became a French citizen, right? I did. I, yes, I did. I, I married a, a, a Frenchman. And I became a French citizen, so now I, I have dual nationality. Um, I'm still hoping one day I might be able to become a Danish citizen one day. But um, but dual but French French American citizenship is pretty good, and I speak French fluently, much 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 better than I speak Danish. Um, and I still work and I still work in French. So, so did you just like off little side note, when you voice Chromie? Did you do the French localization as well? No, I did not. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't invited to do that. And they must have done that in Paris, I would imagine. So, I would have loved to do that, though. If they ever want me to do that, I'll, I'll fly back home to Paris and do that. I would love that. I mean, Andrea could probably do it. Sure, it, it, it would do it. Have you do it there? It shouldn't be an issue, I would guess. Well, I can tell her. I can tell her that you suggested it. I like the idea very much. <laughs> Andrea Toyes is such a awesome person. She is. She's a dear friend, and she's um, she's she's really um, just such a multi-talented um, human being with a with a, a depth of of sensibility and sensitivity for for music, for art, for um, and obviously for for everything that's video games, but. You know, people know her for that, but her talents um, and sensibility goes far beyond all of that.
magic and by sword Forget the titans feeling like Midas Pillars of gold and treasures untold Taking on champions, jade fire masters Roar like a lion, fight like the horde Steal me a shiny from Diver Adore I want to walk with a dinosaur Monkey see, monkey do And ain't this coming after you Guardians keep an opulent secret Give me a scepter, give me a crown Let's brace a flower under an aura We are the royals in this part of town Setting up traps on the path that we pave Into the heart and to the complaint And by sword Will he surrender Give up his empire Will he survive The siege on his life Blessed by the law With extra power Moved by the endeavors Of his own wife I got spirit How about you I did one song To take that from you Is it good To be king Even as you meet your end Top off on potions I hear explosions Tinker boy Got all these toys Out to play Sheep are emotions Our gods are chosen Run with that bomb Run far away Sneaking the gnome He does it fade Using the pot To make his escape Onward my don't give up, our blades will bathe in proud my blood To break through the wall Sirens will come to sing us a song Brother and sister, your bridge will be gone The wheel of the storm might bring us to our knees But nothing will claim us, not even the seas All hands attack, anchors away Towards the daughter of the sea Following Jaina unto the sea You say beware, but beware of me What kind of daughter leaves their own father Cutthroat you are, witch of the sea Crossing our blades under the stars Under the blood moon and all the czar For the alliance, for the horde Battle of You said you thought you weren't pretty enough, you weren't funny enough, you weren't... You you had this this thing that, I would guess, this little voice in your head that said, I, I, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, no, I think it was just plain old um, stubbornness, stick-to-itness. I just, I think I just loved acting so much that I wanted to create... I wanted to create um, a window of, su of success for myself, no matter what. And so, little voice in your head, be quiet. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And I just thought, well, even if I'm not, I'm going to do it anyway, you know. And I think, and I think, what one of the big drives I have, you know, at this point in my life is, um, I would love to be, 
I mean, I just, I'm so grateful for my success and I'd love for my success to even build more and more. And I'd love to be an example for other people that whatever it is you really, really dream to do, if you work really hard and you dedicate yourself to it, you can, you can succeed. And, you know, I didn't sit back and twiddle my thumbs and wish for it, although I've always wished for it, but I, I've worked, I've just had a, I mean, my, my friends tell me, people who know me tell me I'm one of the hardest working people they know. I just, I'm just, I love what I do so much. And so I just, I, I'm still taking classes to this day. I take acting classes with a wonderful acting teacher named Robert Colt. Um, and I'm, I'm just constantly working at my craft. Um, and you know, I, I'm recording a lot, so I'm in the studio almost every day recording. And every time I do, I learn. Um, I'm auditioning all the time, every day. And and I just, I think I'm a, I'd like to believe that I'm a really, I'd hope that I'm a really inspiring example um, for anybody that if you really, really love something, if you just keep going after it, um, you can succeed. And And I think I'm also, I hope, that I'm an inspiration for people that you don't have to believe what anybody tells you. If people tell you you're not good enough or if people tell you, you know, you're not pretty enough or you're not this enough, um, not to listen to that and, and even to prove them wrong, you know? I'm more powerful than I appear, you know? <laughs> so, and, and I, and that's, and again, that's not, that's not through sitting back and going na 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 but that's through, that's through years and years of study and hard work and and um, and also continuously going out of my comfort zone, you know. Do you know? I always tell people, do the thing that you know you have to do that scares you. Do what makes you uncomfortable. You know, you have to make that uncomfortable call. You have, you know, um, don't don't let fear stop you. Mm. What was the biggest challenge you had to overcome? I think I think the biggest challenge was just um, not believing in those voices that said, I'm not good enough. And I think um, in, in the studies I've come across and different people have talked about that. My acting coach, Robert Colt talks about it a lot, but he says that in the Indian culture, they have something called samskaras and samskaras are sort of beliefs that run through the human experience. And that we all have these like beliefs that run through our human experience. So for me, it might be, I'm not good enough for somebody else. It might be, there's something wrong with me for somebody else. It might be, um, I'm, I'm powerless. You know, when we have these, um, negative thoughts that actually don't belong to us personally, but they're just like, almost like, um, a frequency that, uh, will like, that will get caught on us or we'll get, you know, we'll grab onto for some reason in our human experience. That you resonate with. Resonate with. Yeah. And then, and then what happens is, is we, we resonate with it, but we think it belongs to us. So we think it's true instead of just a thought, you know, and again, we, it's, the thoughts that we have actually aren't even our thoughts. There's just thoughts that flow through the human experience and they're actually you know, people say, oh, they're just my thoughts or my mind. And it's actually just thoughts that flow through the human experience. Again, that we just pick up a resonance like a radio channel and we believe and they and they play through us like a radio channel, but they actually don't belong to us. We're just picking them up and then we take ownership of them. 
when it's just, it's just thoughts. And so one of my, the things that I've been working on that I hope will be an inspiration for other people is that you don't have to take delivery of that. You know, when somebody hands you a piece of mail or a piece of registered mail, you don't have to take delivery of it. And, um, so yeah. So one of the things for me is going, no, that's, that's just a thought. It doesn't have to be true. What do you like about being in front of the camera compared to do voiceover and vice versa? Um, what I love about being in front of the camera is I just, I, For me, it's just a magical place to be on set. You know, you walk into wherever you are in a studio or on location, and there is a whole team of incredibly creative people who have been spending weeks before an actor gets on set, building a set, building props. You know, there's been a script that is written and rewritten and rewritten. Um, producers have been getting money for it to figure out how it's going to be shot. Casting directors have been casting all the other characters. The director has been working on it. Um, wardrobe has been building costumes. Makeup has been designing that. And, you know, and then actors audition. And if one gets lucky enough to get an audition, and then if you get lucky enough to be one of the people called back and then chosen for the role, you get a call saying you got that role. And then you go into wardrobe and they uh, do a costume fitting with you. And then a few days later, or you arrive on set and everybody's, you get a trailer and everybody's buzzing around. And, um, and once you go through, once you're in your wardrobe and you might have to wait for hours until they need you. And then you arrive on set and the, they, they have a director of photography who's, you know, busy lighting everything and you get to set and you do a rehearsal and you meet the other actors maybe for the first time and everything is in place for magic to happen. And then, then the actor's job is to connect with the other actors who you may have just met and just make a commitment. We're going to jump into this. We're going to dive into this other reality You know, all of a sudden we're not on a set. We're not, maybe we're not even in 2019. You know, maybe we're in another era. Maybe we're in another space and time. You know, who knows where we are? And there's just this unwritten agreement with the other actors. Let's just go there and create make-believe. And so you're like a kid, you know, a kid playing cowboys and Indians, making, um, making a completely different reality come to life. There's nothing like it. It was just for me. There's just nothing like it. It's uh, it's magical when when all everybody comes together and all of that comes together. It's just really really cool. Um, and the same thing happens with voiceover, except you you know you don't always get to act with the other actors. If you're doing a original cartoon, sometimes you get lucky enough to be to walk into a studio and have two or five or 10 other actors there and you get to work with the other actors. But a lot of times you just walk into a studio and it's you and the engineer and the director and however many clients are in the booth that day, in the studio that day. But it's the same thing. You know, you don't, for voiceover, uh, you have to actually imagine a lot more. So you kind of have to, there's not a, there's not a set. There's not, there's not people, you don't get to be in a, 
a costume. You know, I don't get to dress up like Chromie. <laughs> I don't get to put up my, an Isha costume on. So, you know, you arrive and you just have to imagine like, you know, well, what if, if I were Chromie, what, what would it be like to be Chromie? If I were traveling through space and time, what would that be like? Um, and, um, and then you get to collaborate with the director, you know, whether it's the beautiful Andrea Toyas or whether it's Patrick Seitz or one of the many wonderful directors that Blizzard has or any other video game has, J.B. Blanc. Um, you know, you kind of drop into a, a magic space and time. And at the same time as you're kind of dropping into this place of playfulness, um, there's also all of these technical things that you have to do the same thing on set. You know, you have to stand on a mark to make sure that the light hits you and the cameras and angles just right. And then you have to move to another mark. So when people are walking and talking in a movie or on TV, you know, there's a mark on the floor that they know that they have to hit. You know, same thing with voiceover. We need this done. You know, this has you can't t- take any longer than a certain amount of seconds to say this line. OK, you know. Or, you know, we need this quiet or we need this said fast or this has to fit in here. So at the same time that you're sort of looking to play and create magic, you're also having to be very, very aware of a lot of technical things at the same time. In this video, we'll go over 10 equippable items which had weird or unique effects in Vanilla WoW. And at number 10, we have the Lufa. This was a trinket which had the effect to remove one bleed effect. Now. Seeing as trinkets were kind of rare and hard to get, you didn't really lose much for having this equipped. And using it to get rid of a bleed from a warrior or rogue in PvP, or the odd raid or dungeon boss who applied a bleed, was pretty good. So it was a unique trinket with an effect that was pretty useful, despite the fact it gave no other stats. Then again, a lot of trinkets in vanilla didn't really have stats on them either, and would sometimes only provide a unique effect. The trinket was easy to get too. All you had to do was complete one quest in the Searing Gorge, which required you to go around and kill 20 dinosaurs. And there originally was no limit on the bleed it would remove. So when the Burning Crusade came out, and one of the bosses in the new raid, Morose and Karazhan, used a hard-hitting bleed as one of its mechanics, tanks were using this vanilla wild trinket in order to remove it. So they added a restriction to the trinket, where it would only remove a bleed effect applied from a target level 60 or below. Because outside of this trinket, there are no ways to remove bleeds outside of a dwarf's racial ability stone form and straight up immunity spells which remove everything. Bleeds are one of the few common dot types which can't be removed by healers. Although in Legion, they did add a homage item in the game called the Feathered Lufa. It was an item that you could create with first aid that had the effect to heal for a little bit and remove bleed effects, but only while you're on the Broken Isles. And with the removal of first aid in BFA, this item was just added to Taylor's along with all other first aid crafts. And at number 9, we have the 6 Demon Bag. This was an item with an on-use effect which would have one of six random effects. Three of its effects were to shoot out a spell. Two of its effects were CCs. Its last effect was to summon a fell hunter pet for you for a little bit. Of its six effects, its three spell effects were a lot more common than the other three. So every time you used it, it had a higher than normal chance to shoot a fireball, a frostbolt, which would slow the target for 5 seconds as well, or a chain lightning, which would chain to two other targets. And then its other three more rarer effects was a cyclone-like ability, which was just a straight up stun, 
a polymorph, and then the Fellhunter Pet Summon. Since Trinkets were pretty rare, and you had a good chance for its effects to just do damage, and it only had a 3 minute cooldown, this item, despite having a weird effect, wasn't half bad as far as DPS Trinkets go. Obviously, there were much better ones in the game, but if you had this one, it at least had some fun effects on it if it didn't do damage. Number 8, the Gnomish Mind Control Cap. This engineering item had the effect to possibly mind control an enemy target, which would then allow you to control them like a warlock or hunter pet. But if you already had a pet out, you would have to dismiss your pet first in order to use this ability. But there was also a few catches to it. After patch 1.11, you could only use this item on targets out of combat. Also, you had to be an engineer with a high engineering skill in order to use the item. But despite its name though, you did not need to be a gnomish engineer. Any engineer could use this helmet. The helm had a 30 minute cooldown, so not something that could be used very often. And as probably the biggest caveat to this thing, it had a chance to fail. Which was pretty common with a lot of engineering items. In fact, that's still kind of the case today. If this thing failed, it had a chance to just not do anything. Or mind control yourself and put you under the control of the mob you were attempting to mind control. And because engineering items had a pretty high chance to fail in vanilla WoW, this was not used as a reliable form of CC. And instead, just kind of a fun item with occasional niche uses. Number 7, the Horned Viking Helmet. This helmet had the on-use effect to charge an enemy and incapacitate them for 30 seconds, but it would also knock you down and stun you for a bit. A 30 second CC is actually an incredibly useful effect, to the point where a lot of warriors would farm the helmet in order to use it in PvP. And of course, had some niche PvE uses as well, since CC were heavily used in dungeons and raids. The helmet itself dropped from Eric the Swift in Oldemon, and is only available to Horde players as the NPC is friendly to Alliance. And since it was located inside Oldemon, a not max level dungeon, Warriors could solo this place to grab it if they were smart about it as the item dropped from one of three of the Lost Vikings. So if you attacked one of them, the other two were going to join in. Soloing lower level dungeons back in Illawau was a lot harder than it is today, even if you had about 20 levels on the place. And since the helmet had such a good effect, after Vanilla WoW, they gave the helmet a little restriction that it could only be used on targets level 60 and lower, basically. Number 6, Skull of Impending Doom. This was an offhand item that has the effect to increase your run speed by 60% for 10 seconds, which was a pretty good effect back when not all classes had speed increasers, and the few that did had incredibly long cooldowns or restrictions placed on them. And the offhand only had a 3 minute cooldown, but when used, it would deal damage to you and then drain mana over its duration. So the offhand worked very similar to modern day Burning Rush, a talent that warlocks have which increase their run speed but deals damage to them while it's active. If anything, Burning Rush was probably inspired by the Skull of Impending Doom. In order to get this offhand, you had to complete a four part quest chain which had you go to a dungeon and around the world killing things. The quest would start in the Badlands from a dwarf, who would send you to Oldemon to grab a tablet, which despite the quest text, didn't actually require you to go inside Oldemon, as the tablet was located right outside the entrance. Then you would go to another quest giver in either Ironforge or Undercity, depending on your faction, who would then send you to Dustwalla Marsh, 
Stranglethorn, and the Alteric Mountains to collect three items from three elite mobs. Then, you'd be sent back to the Dwarf in the Badlands and you'd receive your skull. Even with the drawbacks of the skull, it was still a pretty useful item just for the speed increase it gave you, and even saw some niche uses in PvP, on classes that can equip an offhand normally. For the Burning Crusade, the item received an update to drain 60% of your mana and health when you used it, instead of a fixed amount like it did in Vanilla WoW. This was most likely done so it couldn't be abused by the new health values that players had, keeping its drawback as an actual drawback to it. And then in the Cataclysm, you can no longer obtain this item. So if you have one, it still works like the TBC version to this day. And at number 5, we have the Freezing Band. This was a world drop epic ring that had a 1% chance whenever you were hit to freeze the target for 5 seconds, and inflict a little bit of frost damage. It also gave some frost resist and increased the damage of your frost spells. Now the unique thing about this item is absolutely that on hit chance of freezing a target for 5 seconds, as this freeze was treated basically like a stun, and would just freeze them in a block of ice for 5 seconds when activated, had no internal cooldown, and did stack with another freezing band. As this ring was not unique equip, you could have two of them on at the same time to double the chances of getting freeze procs. The only thing that might have prevented this from happening though, was how you obtain this ring. It was a world drop epic item, which is about the hardest way to obtain an item in the game, as you just have to get really lucky to obtain this from a random drop. So usually, the best way to obtain one was to just buy it off the auction house for a crap ton of gold. And even then, there was no guarantees that there would be one on the auction house. But if you were very rich, and you played on a server with these being sold, you could obtain two of them and have fun with your enemies randomly being stunned whenever they hit you. And since the targets were treated as frozen, there was lots of synergy with Frost Mages and their Shatter talent. And at number 4, we have the Thunderbrew Boot Flask. This was another trinket item, which had two unusual effects tied to it. The first being, when you used it, you would breathe fire for 5 seconds, which would give you a nice little AoE. And I've heard reports that this AoE could be used without a target, and wouldn't aggro nearby guards if used on low-level players and towns. Its second effect is that it would get you drunk, which could be a good or bad thing, depending on who you ask, and all on a measly 30-minute cooldown. Vanilla WoW had incredibly long cooldowns on a lot of their items for almost no reason. <laughs> that was kind of the name of the game back then. Everything had long cooldowns in other games, and if anything, WoW's cooldowns were pretty reasonable in comparison. You rarely see abilities or items with cooldowns this long today, when that was kind of the norm back then, as you may have noticed with some of the other items on the list. Now, the way to acquire this item required a lot of legwork. You had to complete a five-part cross-continental journey in order to complete the quest chain, which awarded this trinket. So let's go over it. First part of the quest chain required you to talk to a dwarf in Westfall that required you to be level 40 in order to accept the quest. Westfall was a low-level zone, so it's almost impossible you found this on your own while leveling normally, and also unlikely you found this quest when you're at max level since the quest didn't appear for low-level players or max-level players. And the quest giver himself is kind of hidden in an out-of-the-way location. This is kind of a secretive quest to accept. Anyways, the first part of the quest required you to go to Stranglethorn Vale, in the middle of a Naga camp in order to get some holy spring water. The second part of the quest chain required you to get three separate materials, 
one located in the Swamp of Sorrows, another located in Tanaris, and the last all the way in the Hinterlands. Then you'd be asked to get one true silver bar, which you could just buy off the auction house. And after that, you'd be sent on another journey, this time to Feralis in order to get a branch. And then for the final part of the quest, you'd be sent to the Searing Gorge in order to get a piece of oak. Then, after you returned to Westfall, you'd finally get your trinket. There's some speculation that this was meant to be a quest for players newly obtaining their mounts, to give them a reason to run around the world with their newfound mounts. And that's why it had them go to like five different parts of the world. A speculation that was most likely entirely correct, as in the WoW Diary book, a book in which one of the WoW vanilla developers talks about what went into making the game, they do talk about how they really wanted cross-continental quests for all classes at level 40, so they'd have a reason to use their new mounts. This quest is a good example of what they had planned for every class, instead of just a few of them getting quests like this. Number 3, The Spectral Essence. This trinket has the effect to allow you to interact with ghosts inside of one town. This trinket was pretty standard for quest-like items and special effects, as trinkets in Vanilla WoW were not very commonplace, and good trinkets were pretty rare, your trinket spot was usually fine to equip something there without hindering your character all that much. In order to get the trinket, you had to complete a quest which would send you into Skolomance to kill a rare elite, and burn two bodies. Then you'd get this trinket, which would allow you to talk to the folks of Cyrodaro, and even buy some unique items from a vendor, which could only be seen with this trinket, or the Eye of Divinity, a trinket only priests could equip that dropped from a boss in Molten Core. The trinket didn't have any stats or do anything else. This is basically just the precursor to quest items, which did special things. Blizzard would usually just put them on trinkets that you had to equip. And at number two, we have the Dark Moon card Twisty Nether. This was a Dark Moon trinket which had the effect, which would only have a chance to activate when you died. Basically, it gave you a 10% chance to resurrect after dying, with 20% health and mana. And when the trinket rezzed you, it worked kind of like having a soul stone on you, in which you could choose to accept a resurrection or not. Now, seeing as this trinket only had a 10% chance, it was not at all reliable, and not really worth the trinket slot in raids or dungeons. Its uses were basically just for solo content to occasionally save you a run back to your corpse, or if you literally didn't have any other trinket. It at least had the potential to be sometimes useful in raids or dungeons. Now, this trinket didn't actually see very much use until arenas were added to the game in the Burning Crusade, in which people would equip this trinket in order to sometimes come back to life in an arena match, which could single-handedly help you win the game. Usually, after one person dies in arena, the team which secured the kill will basically treat it as if they've already won, and maybe let their guard down a little bit. So, seeing someone res back up real quick to join the fight is all it could really take in order to turn the tide of the battle back in your favor. And as far as I know, this trinket still works in arenas today. Maybe. I tried looking it up and couldn't really find any confirmation, but I also didn't find anything saying that it didn't. And at number one, we have the Hook of the Master Angler. This is a trinket that had the on-use effect to turn you into a fish and allow underwater breathing and an increased swim speed. Kind of like the artifact fishing pole effect, which turns you into a fish and allows you to swim faster. Except instead of having to equip something in your weapon slot, this one only required you to equip it in your trinket slot. Unusual for a trinket like this, this trinket actually didn't have a cooldown in Vanilla WoW. 
where usually all fun abilities had incredibly long cooldowns. This one, you could just turn to a fish whenever you wanted. Well, outside of waiting 30 seconds after equipping the trinket anyway. The trinket is a reward from the Stranglethorn fishing extravaganza event and winning the grand prize. So not many people could get it, considering the event is only held once a week. And basically, only one person per server can win per week. You can still win this trinket today, but you do have to get first place in the fishing tournament, which is pretty difficult. Unless you're on a server that literally has no one else trying the tournament that week. Which is doubtful, since the tournament also has a prize for an heirloom ring item. Which is an incredibly useful item, as it gives you an extra 5% experience. And since the item is so useful, that means lots of people are still doing this tournament today in order to try to get one. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to win it. The first time I ever tried doing the tournament, I won second place. Not good enough to get this trinket, but it was good enough to get the heirloom ring, which is what I actually wanted anyway. Alright, and that's it for the video. If you know of any other weird vanilla items that I missed, I'd love to hear about them, as well as ideas for future videos just like this one down in the comments. Okay, let's get to some Blizzard stuff now. Okay. Oh, hold on a moment. You found them. Well done, hero. <clears throat> Sorry about the distraction. Someone was turning in a quest. Whoops. I think I might have shortchanged them some silver. Oh well. What was your first contact with Blizzard and how did you get to work for them? My first contact with Blizzard was through um, a casting director, a beautiful human being. Her name was Bridget Burdine. And uh, I met her through, you know, we all, we have contacts in this business through a friend who's worked, who's recommended us. Oh, you should meet this friend. And my dear friend, Chris Smith, Christopher Corey Smith, um, who does a lot of Blizzard work as well. Um, we met about 15 years ago, and I connected him with people at an anime who do who work at Bang Zoom, and I connected him with a, a lot of people in anime. And he had a dear friend named Bridget Burdine, and he connected me with her. And Bridget, um, many years ago, was the casting director for um, for a lot of Blizzard projects, um, and she. A number of years ago, she passed away. She was hit by a car at a very young age. I mean, I think she was in her late 30s, maybe very early 40s, but probably late 30s. And she was just a, such a beautiful human being. And um, I get a little teary when I talk about her um, because she was just such a she's such a bright light. And and um, she was the one who got me into I, my first jobs for World of Warcraft were with her. I think I did. I don't know when people uh, fans will have to go back into IMDb and but I did quite a number of characters for World of Warcraft many, many years ago, um, dragons and all kinds of characters. A lot of those way back when Bridget cast me for and Bridget was also responsible for casting me. The first time I was hired as um, Melina and Katana in Mortal Kombat, um, not the most recent iteration, number 10, but the, a couple before then um, that I did, um, Bridget was the one who got me cast in those roles, and I'll be forever grateful to her for that. Um, and so it was because of her that I first started working for Blizzard. Um, and then when, when she passed away, um, Andrea took over all the casting and she and Andrea collaborated for 
quite a few years and became very dear friends. And then when Bridget passed away, Andrea kind of took, took over um, not just the directing, but the casting as well. And, um, and Andrea since, and I since became uh, dear friends. So, but I also, I also auditioned for a lot of Blizzard stuff. You know, my, the auditions get sent out and I audition for stuff and, and um, sometimes I'm lucky enough to get the role. So, Grand Astromancer Caparian in the uh, Kelthas fight. But uh, one character I would like to ask you about besides Chromie uh, is Lady Sacrilage. Uh, did you reprise her her voice in in, in Legion? Because she you uh, IMDB says you voiced her original. Um, incarnation in the Sunwall in 2007, but then she came back uh, as a character in Legion. That's a good question. I don't know. I think I must have, but um, I, I can't. I don't know. I think some of your fans who are good at researching or has that has that come out yet? Can you hear her? Oh yes. I would. I would only be able to t if it's if I'm not credited for it. I'd only be able to tell if I heard the voice, and I would go, "Oh yeah, that's me." Or um, it's, it's funny because sometimes, usually they have us reprise it, but, but there's sometimes for whatever reason, if, an, if I wasn't available or if it was recorded in a different state or sometimes they just have somebody else do it, um, for whatever reason. Um, there's many different reasons for that, but, um, I would assume I did, but I, um, I mean, I, I go and I record every day and so many different projects and video games. Um, I hate to say it, but all my my files in my brain um, are all cluttered and dusty and, and overcrowded. <laughs> so I, I can't tell you the answer to that, but I bet that one of your fans would be able to research it and find out. And if not, you can send me a clip of it and I'll go, oh, yeah, it's me. Or, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Um, the Vanessa Van Cleef bit is the same thing, where, where where you did the probably you did her as a little girl in the in the uh, Cataclysm expansion in 2010, and then her her grown up version in Legion in the second to last expansion. I think I did her. I think I did her again. I think that was me. Yeah, because I am. Yeah, because IMDb only says you did the voice of that character, but it doesn't distinguish between original and the reprisal. So, yeah. And, and that was the same expansion. I seem to remember doing her recently, recording her recently. Um, but I can't, I can't, I can't promise you. That's okay. <laughs> they, they just all morph, like recording sessions, especially a lot of them we do over at LA studios in, um, in Los Angeles for Blizzard does most of their recordings there now. And so I have so many memories of sitting in that, of standing in that studio or sitting or recording that they all kind of morph. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm in so many places and times I have a hard time keeping track of all of it. The Brotherhood shall prevail. Hello everyone! During the first war between the Horde and the Alliance, the Horde took Stormwind and they destroyed the city. Crown Prince Varian Rin managed to escape the city and the Alliance of Lordaeron defeated the Horde and closed the Dark Portal behind them. They gave Varian his kingdom back, but the city lay in ruins so they had to rebuild it. For this job, they recruited the Stonemasons Guild. 
This guild consisted of many different craftsmen from all over the kingdom who moved their families and lives just for this job. They chose Edwin van Cleve as their leader and the amount of members has been described as a small army. This small army did a fantastic job. Not only did they rebuild Stormwinds, they made it better than before, even including a section for the new Dwarven and Gnome allies. The Gnomes then constructed the gigantic underground tunnel connecting Ironforger Stormwinds to make sure that their line stayed strong and that they could move troops and resources faster. Once the job was done, the stonemasons wanted to be paid for their work, so they asked for their money. This project took several years, and by this time Varian had married Tiffin, she had given birth to Anduin, and the black dragon Onyxia had infiltrated Stormwind. Different sources claim different things about the following events. One side says that the nobles expected the stonemasons to do the work for free, as a service to their kingdom. Other sources say that the nobles simply didn't have the money that was promised to the stonemasons. During Classic World of Warcraft, you had a questline that involved investigating the Defias Brotherhood. Mephia Shaw, leader of the SI7, reports that the nobles had used up their funds by expanding their military presence throughout Elwyn and Stranglethorn. So they simply didn't have the money to pay the stonemasons anymore. What we also know is that Onyxia had manipulated events, convinced the nobles that the stonemasons were asking for too much money. Tiffin, on the other hand, was a supporter of the stonemasons and she urged Varian to pay them what they owed. Varian did his very best to convince the other nobles, but Onyxia, she had her claws deep within the council and his words fell on deaf ears. The nobles didn't pay the stonemasons what was promised, and naturally Edwin van Cleef spoke out against this. In response to this, the nobles ordered the stonemasons guild to disband, which was a huge mistake. The stonemasons by that time figured that if Stormwind wasn't going to pay, then they would get their payment some other way. Van Cleef led a riot through the streets, while the rest of his guild fled the city and moved to Westfall. During this riot, a single rock took the life of Varian's wife Tiffin and sent Varian in a deep depression. Now the stonemasons were no longer under contract by Stormwind and they started to call themselves the Defias Brotherhood. No longer the guild of just builders, now any who were down on their luck, thieves, criminals, any who stood against the house of Stormwind were welcome within the Brotherhood. Van Cleef was not just any ordinary builder. In his youth, he was trained by Mephia Shaw himself, with the idea of Van Cleef possibly joining the SI7. This made him a very skilled and very dangerous man, and on top of that, he had connections. Connections built up in his lifetime as stonemason, and the Defiance Brotherhood grew rapidly. They recruited mercenaries like ogres, hired crafty goblins with their machinery, they had gnolls and kobolds in their ranks, and they took over several locations within the kingdom. They had the mines in Elwyn, had contacts within the House of Nobles of Stormwinds, they had members in Duskwood, in Stranglethorn, but their main base of operations was within Westfall. Not only did they take the mines in that area, they also attacked the farmers of Westfall, burning down their crops and salting the land, hurting Stormwinds even more. Over the years, the Defiage Brotherhood grew into the hundreds and no road was safe from their bandits. Stormwind didn't just sit on its hands while all of this was going on, they tried to take action against the Brotherhood, but their armies were already spread thin, so the people of Westfall had to take it upon themselves to take action, and they formed the People's Militia. A group of citizens who had enough, who realized that Stormwind could never help them, and they took it upon themselves to keep their land safe from the threats of the Defias Brotherhood. Their leader was named Grey and Stoutmantle, paladin and soldier of the Alliance during Warcraft 3. Fools! Our cause is righteous. 
Stout Mantle and his militia recruited heroes from the Alliance not only to kill the Defias, but also to find out where they were, who they were, and what they were up to. This involved a huge questline spreading over three zones, and eventually you would find out about the history of the Stonemasons and Edwin van Cleef himself. The Defiance wasn't just about robbing people, that was a means to an end. Their bigger plan was to take revenge on Stormwinds by building a gigantic juggernaut ship. This ship was crafted after the designs of the Horde and they wanted to attack Stormwind from the sea. I couldn't find out exactly why this ship was such a huge threat. Apparently one single ship could deal massive damage to Stormwind, so let's just go with it. By the time that we find out about all of this, the construction of the ship was nearly complete, so something had to be done and it had to be done fast. The heroes made their way through the death mines, killed several mercenaries along the way until they reached the man who was leading it all. From the shadows he appeared together with his defiant blackguards. Lapdogs, all of you. The heroes prevailed and they took down the man behind the Defiance Brotherhood. Not only did they kill him, they also decapitated him to take his head with them to prove that he was really dead. The death of Van Cleef did not mean the end of the Defiance Brotherhood, since Onyxia wasn't quite done with them yet. As I mentioned earlier, Onyxia had infiltrated Stormwind and she did this under the disguise of Lady Prestor. When Tiffin died, Varian fell into a deep depression and he became very vulnerable to Onyxia's magic. It looked like she had complete control over him, but what she didn't count on was Anduin. The love for his son gave the king the strength to break free from her control, so she had to come up with a new plan. She hired the Defiance Brotherhood to kidnap the king as he went on a secret diplomatic mission to Fenimore. The Defiance Brotherhood managed to capture the king, they brought him to Onyxia, and she split Varian in two. One strong-willed Varian, which he would kill, and one weak-willed Varian, which he would use as a puppet to rule the kingdom from behind the curtains. Her her plan was successful until the Naga attacked. The two variants escaped and the strong-willed variant jumped into the ocean while the weak-willed variant was captured by the Naga and would later be ransomed back to Stormwind. The rest of the story is more about variant, but the point is that the Defiance Brotherhood is still alive and kicking. Chopping off one head of the beast did not kill their organization and unknown to everyone was that Van Cleef was not alone on the ship. He had a daughter, namely Vanessa Van Cleef, and Vanessa saw how five so-called heroes murdered her own father and chopped off his head right in front of her own eyes. After these horrific events, she made her way out of the dead mines all the way to the Seldine's farm. Farmer Seldine and his wife Selma were very kind people and they took care of Vanessa when she walked into their home and collapsed on the floor. Vanessa lied to them and told them that she couldn't remember who she was or where she came from, so they named her Hope. But in truth, Vanessa started to plan her revenge against those who took her father away from her. Time passed and the Lich King started his war against the world. The People's Militia thought that the threat of the Defiance Brotherhood was over, so they renamed themselves the Westfall Brigade and they helped the Alliance in Northrend. Once the war was over, they returned home and saw that things had not improved. Anyone who was unfortunate enough to not have a job in the army became very poor. The land was riddled with beggars and thieves and on top of that, Deathwing broke free and the Cataclysm shook the world. This was the opportunity Vanessa had been waiting for and she made her move. She had Knowles attack Sentinel Hill to keep the militia busy while she recruited new members. Amongst them were Glubuck, a powerful ogre mage, Helix Gearbreaker, a goblin who used to work for the Horde, and Admiral Ripsnarl. Ripsnarl used to be a human named James Harrington, but he somehow became a worgen and murdered his own daughter, son and wife. He was recruited to command the Juggernaut when it was ready to move out and attack the city of Stormwind. 
All of this story is not directly revealed when you reach Westfall. It all begins with the murder of poor old Blanche and the farmer's furbrow. This leads into a huge investigation, which reveals that it was Vanessa who put out the hit on the farmers, and that she's been busy resurrecting the Defias Brotherhood. She holds a speech in the middle of Moonbrook, telling the people that today is the day they'll make a stand. Gather, brothers and sisters, come all and listen. We are abandoned, the orphaned children of Stormwind. Our king sits atop his throne made of gold and shrugs at our plight. Meanwhile, our children die of starvation on these very streets. His war, not ours, cost us our livelihood. We paid for the Alliance victories with our blood and the blood of our loved ones. The time has come, brothers and sisters, to stop this injustice. The government of Stormwind, of the Alliance, must be made accountable for what it has done to us. Today, we are reborn. Today, we take a stand as men and women, not nameless, faceless numbers. Vision within the Dead Minds shows you that Vanessa is Van Cleef's daughter, and you quickly return to Sentinel Hill to report the news. You bastards will burn for what you did. Out of the tower, Hope Seldin moves to the group gathered. In her disguise, she was able to overhear everything that the militia did, and as promised, the day of reckoning had come. Vanessa revealed herself, and out of the shadows, the Defiers Brotherhood struck, freeing Captain Ripsnarl and burning Sentinel Hill to the ground. Before Vanessa left, they asked her, why? Why did the fur brawls have to die? To which Vanessa explains that they had recognized her for who she really was. She couldn't take the chance of being exposed, so the farmers had to die, although she took no pleasure out of their deaths. She decides to spare your life, since you've helped her with her cause, even if you didn't know it yourself. With Sentinel Hill burning, you're sent to Stormwind to warn the king about what had happened. In response, Varian promises to send more troops to Westfall to reclaim the hill. This took care of the immediate threat, but we still had to worry about the Defias within the Dead Mines. We got the task of clearing out the Dead Mines once again, and along the way we took out Vanessa's henchmen. At low level, Captain Cookie will come out and act as a decoy, but at level 85 we faced off against the real kingpin of the Defias Brotherhood. I've been waiting a long time for this, you know. Biding my time, building my forces, studying the minds of my enemies. I was never very good at hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know. Not like my father. But I always excelled at poisons. Especially venoms that affect the mind. Poor Globtok. When his powers manifested, his own Ogre Mound was the first to burn. Deep within his soul, the one thing he feared most of all was himself. Most rogues prefer to cloak themselves in the shadows, but not Helix. 
You never know what skitters in the darkness. Can you imagine the life of a machine? A simple spark can mean the difference between life <laughs> and death. Ripsnarl wasn't always a bloodthirsty savage. Once, he even had a family. He was called James Harrington. A tragedy in three parts. After fighting through the fear, we end up in hand-to-hand -hand combat with Vanessa Van Cleef. I will not share my father's fate! Your tale ends here. She wasn't as strained as her father was, but she was smart and she came prepared. She rigged the ship with several explosions, which took out many of the first-time adventurers who didn't know about the ropes. Fools! <laughs> this entire ship is rigged with explosives! Enjoy your fiery deaths! In her final moments, with death staring her in the face, she refuses to give up and go down the same way her father went. I will not give you the pleasure! If I'm going to die, I'm taking you all with me. My fate is my own! In a desperate last attempt of murdering the heroes who tried to stop her, Vanessa Van Cleef took her own life by blowing herself up. Which brings us to the end of the story of the Defias Brotherhood, at least for this moment. As long as Stormwind can't take care of its own citizens, the Defias will never truly be gone. This is the first time that I actually feel sympathy for an organization that's supposed to be bad. In reality, they were just pawns used by Onyxia. They were the victims of the story. The House of Nobles were the ones who refused to pay them. And sure, their actions were not good or right, but revenge is a very powerful motivation. Who knows what might have happened to the Van Cleefs if they were just paid for the work that they had done and there's still one thing left unanswered. Who is Vanessa's mother? Will she possibly take up the mantle of Kingpin one day? Are there more children that we didn't know about? Who can say but for the moment the dead minds are clear again and hopefully Stormwind will use this time to rebuild Westfall, bring food, build homes for all those who lost their family in the name of Stormwind. That's the end of my video, thank you very much for watching everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos, and until next time, guys, see ya! Yeah, and then obviously, uh, Chromie uh, in in World of Draenor, and, and then the the uh, scenario, the death of Chromie. Oh, yeah, that was so much fun! <laughs> Where you pretty much were like... Uh, the exclusive voice in the whole thing where where she dies so many times yeah i really i really like that i really love the fact and and so many other people's people like that uh, or loved it even that chromie got that much of a focus with a exclusive scenario and that was that was just awesome isha the voice that you did in heart of the, the swarm i own the game i haven't played it yet uh so but i know that that uh or I, I i looked it up and uh like i said to patty madsen uh when i interviewed her i don't know if uh, how, how familiar you are i know her she's yeah she's lovely lovely when i 
hear her character Sylvanas Windrunner speak, uh, I always hear Patty's voice in the background. It's like the lingering somewhere in the background, like the back of your head, the voice that's still there. It's like a presence that can't be denied, but still, and, and that's what gives the character that special something. Yeah. And uh, the more I listen to, to, to Isha, the, the, the stuff, obviously, there isn't as much sound bites available as there is for, for, for Chromie, but I can distinctly hear that there is something, something there. I, I, I like that, that if you listen for the original person's voice, sometimes you can hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that too. I, I know that with a, a lot of my friends who are voiceover artists. I'll hear, um, I'll hear like, uh, what would you call it? Yeah, just you can hear pieces of them in the voice. Mm-hmm. What piece of advice that you got was the most important for you when it comes to 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 your career that you that you um, that you acted on or that you incorporated into your career? Um, I think the most recent piece of advice I've come to understand as well. Uh, my coach Robert Colt talks about it a lot, but it's something that I've just come to understand as well. Is that um, one of the most important things within the craft is to be having fun? Um, and I think that I, because I'm I'm a workhorse and I'm very disciplined, and I just you know it's. I, I push myself and I, I and I want to succeed. Sometimes I get a little too um, heavy and serious about it. And I have to go back to that sense of playing like a child. You know, whether I'm whether I'm pretending to be a gnome or whether I'm, you know, pretending to be, you know, a French uh, poodle or, you know, or whether I'm, you know, on screen being um you know, somebody's mother dying of cancer, there's an element of, of, of play, you know, whether it's diving into the goofiness or whether it's diving into the beauty of the vulnerability of the human experience. And there's, and there's an element of, of, of deep fun to do that. You know, it's, 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 it's not giggly fun, but there's a, it's like an artist who, who is drawing a, a beautiful painting that might be dark, but there, there is pleasure to, um, to expressing that. And there is a certain pleasure to, you know, expressing the delightful part of the human soul. Um, there's a pleasure to the giggly part of the human soul. The, there's a pleasure to the awkward, quirky part, you know, and as soon as I go back to that in an audition or when, when I'm on, you know, in a recording studio, because occasionally, you know, I'll have a long day and I'll have a couple recordings and I have to get to this and then I'm stressed by traffic and then I get there and I'm like, oh, here we go. And, and as soon as I connect to, oh, wait a minute, I love this and find what I love in it all over again, then what happens is, is the audience feels that. 
and then they get to go on. I take them on a trip. But if I'm like working or pushing it or, you know, and I think that's true of any art. I think if you're a painter or a dancer, like, you know, dancers feet are hurting, but when they're still loving what they do, you know, you watch them and you're just in awe. And, and I think, and I think that's also what makes any artist you know through thick and thin because we're rejected all the time i'm rejected all day long you know i i audition i audition several times a day whether it's for on camera or voiceover and most of the time i don't hear anything back which is a rejection or i get you know or i get you know messages from my agent saying oh no you they didn't want you for this or they passed or so you have to be really strong and you have to just connect with the thing why did you do why do you want to do this in the first place because i love it and i love to tell stories and so every single day that is what i do is i connect to what i love about this and and when i walk into the studio or when i walk into an audition or on set you know why like and i'm reading a character like oh i don't feel like doing this you know like no wait a minute what do i love about this and once i connect to that then that translates that translates to the listener that translates to the audience and um and that and that translates to making magic happen Hi, I'm Hazel, and today we're talking about mount equipment. And I'm breaking down everything you need to know about Titan Essences. Of all the wonderful 8.2 things that I got to see at Blizzard this week, this one probably took them the least time to make, and it excites me the most. I can't wait for this. So here's what mount equipment actually is. So in 8.2, you will have basically a gem slot in your mount journal. You'll get some mount equipment, put it in that slot, and then all of your mounts will benefit from that equipment. It's not a mount by mount basis, one slot per character. With a piece of equipment active, you will get a bonus utility to your mount. So the three that they showed us, one was a parachute, where if you dismount above the ground, you will get a slow fall. So you could just go ahead and jump right off that pyramid or whatever, and slow fall your way to wherever you're going. Second one was a daze immunity. So if you're one of those people that's whole day is just ruined if you are dazed or knocked off your mount, that is the one for you. And then the third one will give you water walking on all of your mounts. So no more water strider unless you really like it and want to keep using it. You can now put inflatable shoes on your boat to make your boat float. Or on, or on your wolf or your rocket or on like, you know, whatever, any of them. Those are the three confirmed ones. I did hear an offhanded mention of the possibility of a flat speed increase one so that if you didn't like any of the utilities from the other mount equipments, you could just slot in one to go faster. I didn't see that in the announcement live stream and I never actually heard like a percentage increase number. So hopefully that one's kind of still up in the air. I actually wouldn't want one to be too fast because then I feel like I can't use one of the other ones if one of them is just like 20 or 30% mount speed. I'd be hoping for something closer to five or maybe they'll skip that one. Hard to say, but it is a possibility. So what does this mean for mounts that already do cool stuff? So the water striders will lose their water walking ability in a 8.2. So if you are not using the water walking equipment in 8.2 and you get onto your water strider, it's gonna sink. The other fancy mount category is the herbalism mount, so your sky golem and your mechanized lumber extractor that of course allow you to pick herbs while mounted. Those will still do that. You can still pick herbs while mounted on those mounts in 8.2, but they will not benefit from your mount equipment effect. They only get the one they already have. In order to use mount equipment, you are going to need to unlock the socket and that is done by having a level 100 or higher character. 
That's it. You're good. You have 100 or higher. You have a 120 right now. You're set. You will be able to use mount equipment in 8.2. Now, once you've unlocked it, you can benefit from mount equipment starting at level 20. So if you're worried about leveling alts without the use of your water strider, no worries. Just get yourself some water walking equipment and you will be able to water walk your way to all the way through all of the zones that you would like to level through that have water. The next big question is where does it come from and how expensive is this gonna be? So mount equipment will be created by crafting professions, so we don't know exactly which ones yet, but it's a safe bet to say that blacksmithing's getting one. Um, probably the other armor crafting professions will get them as well, hard to say, but that's my guess. But they're made by professions and they're supposed to be not super, super cheap but also not insanely expensive. And what that means, I have no idea. I am guessing more than 5K and less than 15K, but I don't know. The price is important because they do work like gems. You can change which one you're using anytime you like in any place you like, but it's gonna destroy the old one in the process. So if you're flipping back and forth constantly, that's gonna get really expensive. It's more likely that you're gonna wanna choose which one is best for a given character based on what other bonuses they might have. Like for example, shamans and death knights don't need water walking and tanks probably don't care about the dazing thing. So just like pick the one you want and then have that and don't change it too much to save gold. But you know, it's up to you. Something to keep in mind about this is that flying is also in this patch and you will be able to fly in Najatar, in Mechagon, as well as in Kul'Turess and Zandalar. So as soon as you get access to that, which is going to be a couple of weeks into patch 8.2, you're going to be a little bit less excited about the fact that you can walk on water that you can now fly over or that you won't get dazed by the mobs that you are now flying over or that you can parachute down somewhere that you can now fly over. So I think this is going to be more exciting for leveling and for next expansion when we're stuck on the ground for another six months. It goes without saying that I am very excited for this. I've been wanting to water walk on something that's not my water strider forever. And I think that this is a system that they can add on to in the future, although I imagine they'll do so cautiously because they can't just like add equipment that's too good and they go, oh, never mind and take it out. This next part is entirely my own speculation. So it's not news, it's not a hint, but I could see a world where in the future they have like zone specific mount equipment so that they can like experiment with doing wilder mount equipment effects but tie them to like a specific new zone so that it doesn't like break the rest of the game. Um, that's not an announcement. Nobody said that. I'm just imagining things but I think that would be really cool. So that's mount equipment. I can't wait. I'm gonna slap inflatable shoes on everything. Titan Essences. This is the new Azerite progression system coming in 8.2. If you've not been a fan of Azerite so far this expansion, this is still Azerite, but it is a wildly different take on it. So there is still Azerite gear in 8.2, but when you get a new head or shoulders or chest piece, instead of having to wait to unlock all of the traits, you'll have access to all of them right away. So you can get your new gear, make your choices, and you're good. There will still be new Azerite traits in 8.2. They're not completely ditching that system. You'll just be able to use them right away. So your new traits are just ready to go. And that begs the question of, well, why do you want Azerite? So as you gain Azerite levels in 8.2, instead of unlocking access to new rings on gear, instead, you're going to be unlocking slots on your neck piece. There are three slots in total. The first one is a major slot and that one is unlocked for free by default. You don't need to level up for that one. You will have it immediately on your Heart of Azeroth as soon as 8.2 drops. Level your Heart of Azeroth some more and you'll unlock a second slot that's a smaller one and then level it even further. And at some point down the road, probably like mid 8.2 cycle is when you're like projected to get this level of Azerite, you will unlock your third and final slot, which is another one of those small ones. At certain levels in between those major slot unlocks, you will also unlock small upgrades 
to your health. So you've got three slots to fill and this is where Titan Essences come in. A Titan Essence is kind of like a cross between a talent and a relic. Each essence has a major effect, which is almost always an active ability, and then a minor effect, which is a passive. When you put an essence into that big slot, you will get both the major and the minor effect. If you put that same essence into the smaller slot, you will only get the minor effect. You can only put an essence into one of those three slots. So down the road, when you have all three slots unlocked, you'll be choosing three essences to use. The thing that sets these apart from talents and what we had with Legion artifacts is that Titan essences are not tied to your class. Everyone is using the same essences and for the most part, they do the same thing for everybody, mostly. There are a few exceptions to that. The active abilities are generally Azerite and Titan themed, so you've got like your Azerite Beam, your Azerite Laser, your Azerite like targeted AoE, your Azerite like poof on you AoE, that kind of thing. Like I said, there are some exceptions. There was one Titan Essence that would reduce the cooldown of one of your major cooldowns. So for Paladins, for example, that was their Wings cooldown, but it would reduce a different cooldown depending on what class you're playing, but everybody can still get it and it will do that kind of thing for everyone, if that makes sense. There were also role specific effects. So a Titan Essence might have a healing spec version and a tank spec version and a DPS spec version. So for an example Titan Essence that I got to try out, the active ability was a Purifying Blast. So that was a targeted ground reticle AoE. It was on a one minute cooldown. You slap it down over whatever trash pack you're working on and it does some damage. For the passive effect, my abilities had a chance to release an extra blast of damage to a random target within eight yards of my target. If that's in your major slot, you get both. If it's in your minor slot, you only get the second one. And again, you cannot stack them. The next question is where do you get Titan Essences? So they come from all kinds of different activity. You can get them from rep, from dungeons, from raids, from PVP. And the really nice thing about this is that each one has a set activity source. So if there's one that you really need, then you know exactly what it is that you need to do in order to get that one essence. Once you've earned an essence, you have access to it forever. You cannot lose it. You cannot destroy it. You cannot accidentally vendor it. That is yours now. And you can change them in and out like talents. So there is no respec fee. They are not destroyed when you change them. It is like a talent. You go to a rested area or pop a tome and then you can switch them out as many times as you like. The next thing to know about Titan Essences is that they have ranks. The first rank will be from an easier and very accessible version of the activity that Essence is from. For example, if it's a Raid Essence, you'll get rank one out of LFR, and then rank two would be from Normal, rank three would be from Heroic, and then if you do Mythic, then you can get the Legendary rank. So ranks of a Titan Essence are not just number tune-ups. They're not just stronger versions of the same thing. They actually add additional effects. So if we return to the Purifying Blast example, at rank two, that AoE will stun any aberrations, and at rank three, if it kills an enemy, you will get a 10% damage buff for eight seconds. The minor bonuses on essences will also gain new effects as you rank them up. You do not need to collect them in order. So if you get the rank three version of a Titan Essence first, you do not need to go back and collect one and two. And when you get rank four, that's not actually an extra effect, but rank four is the legendary rank. And that adds an extra cosmetic effect to the active ability. So that Azerite explosion might be like a super wild fireworks, the Azerite explosion, so that everybody knows that you did something really challenging to earn that legendary rank. That fourth legendary rank of an essence is going to be from the most challenging version of the content it offers. So if it's from a raid, that's going to be from mythic. If it's from arena, it'll be from very high rating. If it's from rep, that'll be like a random drop from the Paragon cache. So not all of them are going to be hard, but the ones that aren't hard are still going to require a lot of time persistence and perhaps some luck. So overall, to kind of sum it up, Titan Essences are much closer to a new talent choice than they are to our current version of Azerite gear. There are options to choose from. Each one has a very clear path that you need to take in order to get it so you know exactly what you need to do. It should give you things to search for and work towards and let you customize the way you play your character in different situations. 
I'm personally really excited about this system, but my one concern is that all essences will work in all activities. So if you get a PvP essence, that'll work in raids and vice versa. So my concern is that maybe on a PvP character, if my very best essence comes from raiding, and it's maybe like the rank three one from a heroic raiding on a character that I never planned to raid on, you may feel yourself being sort of encouraged to do activities that you had not planned to do on a given character. The same could be true in reverse. Uh, for example, maybe as a raider, one of your better traits is from PvP. We discussed this at length with the devs, they are aware of it, and the gist of what they said is that A, the first rank is going to be very accessible, so if you just need the active ability, you shouldn't need to do anything too crazy hard in another activity in order to get it, it should be pretty easy to get your hands on rank 1. And secondly, they're okay with encouraging you to try activities that you may not have dabbled with before. As long as they haven't really bungled the tuning on these, the average player should be perfectly effective with whatever traits they're able to get their hands on, and it's mostly just like the cutting edge people that were going to do anything that they could anyways that might feel the need to go hard enough to get the rank 3 version of an essence from an activity they didn't plan to do. The other thing they said is that if one essence has an ability that is just wildly better for a specific type of content, to wherever possible make that available from that kind of content or like something adjacent so that something that's just like clearly designed for mythic rating isn't from endgame arena if that makes sense they're aware of it they're not trying to ruin your life um, but this is just the way the system works so those are titan essences the system is pretty far along in development and will be ready for you to test out on the ptr starting next week so if you want to test it out it'll be on the ptr starting next week that's free anybody can do it and the reason why they have the system ready so early is because they really want time for people to play it and see how it feels and give feedback that they can iterate on before it just goes live like some systems in the past. Um, Azerite Armor on the BFA beta was implemented really late as an example of that. So it feels like they're learning from that experience. So test it out. Decide how you feel based on the way that it plays for you and the things that you like to do. Um, they want perspectives from all kinds of different players. So let them know what you think. Uh, thank you so much for watching and I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful day. At the end, as always, I would like to ask my guests to tell us where we can find them on the social media, maybe some projects upcoming that aren't NDA'd. So where can we find you? So you can find me on Instagram at, at Karen Strassman. You can find me on Twitter at, at Karen Strassman. You can find me at my Facebook fan page. So it's Karen Strassman fan page. Um, and I also have, um, I have a, a website, www.karenstrassman.com. Um, and if you want more, all things Karen Strassman, you can research them there. Um, and projects coming up. Um, I have a recurring role on a TV show called Bosch which is a really fantastic detective show that I'm, I'm just, I've been, um, I was about to say chain smoking. I've been <laughs> um, binge watching. Um, this is really, really good show. This is Amazon, Amazon show, right? Yes, yes. If you haven't seen Preacher um, and you're a fan of anything Karen Strassman, then you'll probably really enjoy that. I play a German, an evil German scientist 
and it was a wonderful character composition role. And um, and that's in the most recent, uh, the third season of Preacher. Um, and I play Dr. Lois Slotnick. Um, I'm in an upcoming horror TV show that I can't talk about yet, but that'll be really fun once that comes out. And people will have to sleuth that out or or see it once I announce it on um, on social media. And I'm also in, I'm working with an iconic a uh, film director named Tom Six, who many of you might know from The Human Centipede, who's doing a little bit of a different genre than The Human Centipede, but it's a very bold and daring and shocking film, and I play one of the lead characters in it. Um, and uh, I think I think it's going to get a lot of attention, and uh, it was really a really fascinating project to be part of, and I'm proud, very proud of it. It's called The Onania Club, so you can look out for that. Um, Resident Evil 2 just came out where I play the very disturbed um, Dr. Annette Birkin, and I also did the motion capture for that. And that's a really, people have been saying it's just a really beautiful and cool video game. We've been getting a lot of good feedback on that. Um, let's see, I, uh, what other things can I talk about? Oh, you can, oh, you can hear me as one of the, the lead girl in Subway Surfer, which is a new animated series based on the video game Subway Surfers, Subway Surfers, um, and that you can find on YouTube. Um, Wolfenstein, I play Maria, um, a French character. I also did motion capture for that. Um, I just reprised a very, very popular role in a very, very, very popular anime, but I can't talk about that yet either. Um, I play a wonderful role in Hunter x Hunter, which is very popular. A lot of fans love that. And um, yeah, otherwise look on IMDb. You can find some cool stuff there and I'll, and I'll keep announcing stuff on, uh, on, um, on social media. Great. Thank you very much, Karen, for sitting down with me to have this chat. My pleasure. And should Chromi come back eventually, I hope you would be willing to come back to talk about the, the new parts once she does, if she does. I'd be delighted. Cool. Thank you very much. That was the interview with Karen Strassman. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Sadly, I had some nerve issues, so I totally went blank at the end with regards to some more chromic questions I would have loved to ask. I hope that I can do that next time when we chat. But still, I hope you enjoyed the interview anyway, just as much as I have. The two lore segments by Noble are sadly not as up to date as I would have wanted for this episode because they were made prior to Legion. So they didn't include the scenario and the sound bites that I could have used from that. And it didn't include the updated storyline of Vanessa Van Cleef either. So I hope you can bear with me there because there is just nothing available with regards to that. Anyway, like I said, I hope you enjoyed episode 47 of Corpse Run Radio, and I hope to see you again at episode 48 
with episode 48, I will definitely be talking a little more again myself about the upcoming 8.2 patch and my thoughts on that. I will be interviewed on a podcast sometime in the next couple of days and that interview should be out within the next couple of weeks I would imagine. So if you still haven't had enough of me and my voice keep a lookout for that. I will promote the episode obviously on the Twitter feed of the show. I will continue to stream on the twitch.tv slash radio feed now that all my personal issues have been settled more or less. So there is that. With all that said, see you next time. Dark Lady watch over you. Bye everyone. And as always, it is time to thank our contributors. First of all, I would like to thank Karen Strassman for sitting down with me for this lovely interview that you just heard. And I hope we can do it really soon again, as soon as the content merits it. Also, we've had Charm with her Desire Lore song, World of Warcraft parody. We had Noble 87 with two lore segments. One was the story of Chromie. The other one was the story of the Defiers Brotherhood. And along with that, Vanessa Van Cleef, which is another one of the characters that Karen Strassman voiced. And then we had Hero Maradex with top 10 weirdest vanilla WoW equipped items. And we had at the end a double dose of Hazel. I cut them into one soundbite. I hope that Hazel doesn't mind. We had her explain for us how the Titan essences work and how the mount equipments are going to work. Both of these topics are stuff that's upcoming in 8.2. This episode, obviously, as always, I would like to thank Paddy Madsen for providing the sound clips, the sound bites, intro and outro. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Corpse Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at mail at gmail.com or on Twitter at CorpsRunRadio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash radio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time. Until we meet again. See you soon.